our young people. John chapter number 12. John uh, chapter number 12. This is a section of scripture where Jesus uh, really, for the last time, gives a, a, a public proclamation sermon discourse. The setting is the Passover. As we have already looked at in John 12, Jesus has uh, come to the outskirts of Jerusalem there at that meal in Simon's house at Bethany, just a couple miles away from Jerusalem. There he had that wonderful meal with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and with Simon, and with the disciples. And uh, Mary broke that alabaster uh, flask with the spikenard ointment and anointed Jesus's uh, feet and his head. And we went through the significance of all of that and that great sacrifice. We talked about the contrast between Mary and Judas. And then we uh, went down and we saw where Jesus uh, last week in verses 12 through 19 entered into Jerusalem in what we know as the triumphal entry. And the significance of that prophetically, the significance of that in the hearts and the minds of all who were there that day and also through the inspiration of God's word and the preservation of God's word, the significance of that to us even today as people continue to want a Jesus of their own making, a Jesus of their own identity instead of the Jesus of the Bible. And then that brings us here to verse 20. And now the Passover feast is, really it's the, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast, excuse me, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's that setting where the Passover uh, is coming there at the end of the week, the actual Passover meal, where the Passover lamb will be slaughtered, and there will be the great Passover feast. We're talking about a week-long celebration with the Passover being the highlight, being the, the climax of that week of festivities, and it's a time that should be a time of worship a time of reflection and celebration of what God has done and what God will do. And here in their midst is the Messiah. Here is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. There was the triumphal entry, and again, people laid down their coats, their garments, and people put down palm branches. And they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, but there were so many in that at that Passover feast, at that Feast of Unleavened Bread, there were so many who were not seeing Jesus for who he really is, as the Messiah's, the God-man, who is coming to pay the penalty for our sins, to make that payment to be our substitutionary sacrifice, that we might receive forgiveness of our sins, that we might have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and have a home in heaven. And so here in this great festivity with all that was going on, thousands and thousands of people had descended upon Jerusalem. There was talk about Jesus. Remember the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were concerned. If anyone knows where Jesus is, let them know because they desired to take him so they could execute him. So there is kind of a buzz throughout the crowd. Is Jesus coming there's obviously all the festivities going on, and here we are 
in John 12 and verse 20, and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. Just prior to this, as best we can tell by comparing Scripture with Scripture, Matthew 21 and Luke 19, we know that Jesus had entered into, into Jerusalem. All four gospel accounts give the accounts of the triumphal entry. But then we also know that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem in Mark 11, that Jesus cursed an unfruitful fig tree. And then in Matthew 21 and in Luke 19, we read that Jesus also cleansed the temple for the second time in his ministry. Now, you think that might have stirred some things up in that Passover meal and that feast time. As they're preparing for the Passover, as they're going through all the celebrities, the, the celebrations and the, the, the festivities of the feast, all centered around the temple, and Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple for a second time. He had done it early in his ministry, and now again near the end of his ministry. Once again, speaking to the significance of the purity that we must have in our worship, of how we must come to the Lord with holy hands and a pure heart. The necessity of coming before the Lord, not just with the externals all perfectly correct, but with a heart for the Lord, with a broken and a contrite heart, with a submissive heart, wanting truly in our hearts for Jesus Christ to be King of kings and Lord of lords, to be our Savior from our hearts. So we know there were some other events going on. No, no doubt when Jesus went into the temple and cleansed the temple, throwing over those tables and saying, make not my house a house of merchandise, calling those thieves, those robbers who were ripping off the people, saying, don't make the temple, don't make my house a den of thieves, a house of merchandise. No doubt that had spread the word, Jesus is here. People were talking about him. But the Greeks, the Greeks were still, at some point in all of this, they were trying to find Jesus so they could come and they could meet him and they could talk to him. Now, what is significant about these Greeks? We read here in verse 20, they were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. They were at least curious participants. They were at least Greeks who had come to Jerusalem wanting to be a part of the Passover feast in some way, shape, or form. But we see that they were considered worshipers. So they at least had adopted to some degree an element of the Judaic, the, the Jewish worship system. We don't know exactly where they were as far as their beliefs. We can make some assumptions the fact that they were worshipers seems to indicate that they at least had some knowledge of the Old Testament and the significance of the feast. These were not Hellenistic Jews. They are identified as Greeks. They were not just Jews who spoke the Greek language, but they were Gentiles. They were Greeks. So kind of like the wise men who were Gentiles who came from the East and worshiped Jesus when he was born, so we see, in a similar sense, we see a group of Gentiles coming, wanting to meet Jesus and to worship Jesus near his death. These Greeks 
were no doubt wanting to know Christ. They were not just there. Yes, they were there to worship, to be a part of the the Jewish ceremony and to be a part of the feast and to maybe recognize some of the symbolism and to be caught up in in a sense in in the celebration of the Passover. But there seems to be indication that there was a genuine desire to know Christ, to know Jesus, to meet with him, to talk with him. In clear contrast to the religious leaders who wanted to take Jesus and to murder him, we see these Gentiles wanting to meet Jesus, to know him, to worship him, to love him, to serve him. So the Greeks, Greeks known for their philosophy, known for their intellect, known for seeking after knowledge. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 22, we read, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. We know from a little bit of maybe literature, English class, some of the Greek mythology and the philosophy, the philosophers, the great philosophers like Aristotle and Plato, Socrates, the Greeks, they loved knowledge. They loved philosophy. They were in love with their intellect. And I can't help but wonder if these Greeks had given up on their philosophy. They had given up on their intellects. They had given up on seeking after just rational explanations for the world and for the universe, and they wanted to know Jesus. He had the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Here are these Greeks, in contrast to even the Jewish religious leaders who were seeking after true wisdom found in Jesus Christ. We know the Romans had assimilated much of Greek culture and then, of course, added their own. Again, these are not Hellenistic Jews, just Jews who spoke the Greek language, but literally Gentiles. That once again reminds us and gives us an example of how God loves the whole world. He had a plan for even Gentiles like us. I don't know, maybe there is someone here of Jewish descent. I don't know of any. I'd like to meet you afterward if uh, you do have Jewish descent, but I would say that probably 100% of us or close to that are Gentiles. And aren't we thankful that God loved the Gentiles, that God loved the whole world, that he saved even us as Gentiles, that God had a plan for us to be a part of his redemption plan and to be saved that we're distinct from Israel, that we're distinct from Jews. God loves the Gentiles. God loves the whole world. God loves all people. And we see that even here as these Gentiles seek after Christ. So why were they seeking Jesus? Again, I think it was because they genuinely wanted to know him. They genuinely, genuinely wanted to worship him. It was in great contrast to these religious leaders, even to some of the Jews who were there at that Passover feast, to They only wanted to see Jesus for miracles, for maybe some political agenda, like we talked about last week. They wanted him to throw off the Roman oppression. In great contrast to the religious leaders and to others who were there that day who wanted to find Jesus to take him and to murder him, these Greeks 
These Gentiles sought after Jesus to know him, to worship him. So what made them ask Philip? We see there in verse 21, the same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee. Okay, so Jesus was a, a, a Nazarene. He was from the city, the town of Nazareth. He was from Galilee. Philip was also from Galilee. Maybe there was something about Philip in the way he spoke and the way he conducted himself that the Greeks, again, how much they were familiar with Galilean versus Judean culture, I don't know, but maybe there was something about Philip and they knew enough about Jesus. They had heard enough that Jesus being from Galilee and Philip had some characteristics of Galileans. And so they said, I wonder if that guy knows Jesus. Maybe that was it. How did Philip come into contact with them, with thousands of people in this big crowd? And there wasn't social media. It wasn't like they could go to Facebook and look up all their hundreds of friends and say, okay, friend of Jesus, let me see here. You know, it wasn't like that. There was a big crowd. There, there were lots of people talking and interacting. I know that it was the providence of God, but I can't help but wonder if there was something about Philip's behavior something about Philip's speech, the way he conducted himself, that these Gentiles, these Greeks said, there's a man who knows Jesus. There's a man who could take us to Jesus. I can't help but make the application. What about our lives? Would people say, there's somebody who knows Jesus. There's somebody is, who is different there is somebody who has a hope. There's somebody who has a meaning to their life. There's somebody who has a joy. There is somebody who's not living for this world and is looking for all that this world can offer. There's something different. What is it? Would they say about us, do you know Jesus? Can you take me to Jesus? It seems that you know Jesus. It seems that you know the Lord. It seems there's something different about you. I can't help but wonder if it wasn't just Yes, some background, some culture, some, in, some, some dialects, some way in which Philip was outwardly recognizable as a Galilean and Jesus being a Galilean from Nazareth, that there was some sort of identity in that way. But I, I just can't help but wonder if Philip had a way about him in which his speech was different. The way he conducted himself at that feast, he was truly worshiping there was something about him that he understood the true meaning that he knew the lord and they said that man has been with jesus maybe he can take us to him and we know from the original language that this word ask verse 21 the same came therefore to philip which was of the state of galilee and desired him saying sir we would see jesus that i said the word ask in in the original language uh, we would see is to literally keep asking, to keep desiring to see Jesus. So it's almost as if Philip meets them and then they interact with him, they have a conversation with him, they maybe even go with him maybe to some of the festivities and they recognize that this man has been with Jesus and could possibly take them to Jesus and they continue to ask, hey, Philip, when are you going to take us to, that, to, to Jesus? When are you going to take us to that man that you follow? Hey, Philip, um, it's, been, it's been a little while. We've enjoyed some of the festivities. Can you take us to Jesus? You ever had a child or a grandchild who won't quit asking you over and over and over? 
They just continually, can I have, can I have this? Can you take me here? Hey, can we go here? You ever had a child or a grandchild like that? I know I've been that child at times. I know I've been that one. Hey, dad, hey, mom, can you, can you, can you, please, please? And in the original language, that's, they, they wanted to see Jesus. There was an asking, there was a desire to see him, and it kept coming up, apparently, in the conversation. There was a real desire, Philip, can you take us to Jesus? And so what does Philip do? Does he tell them no? Does he condemn them as Gentiles, Greeks? So you, you're not of the Jewish descendant, descent, uh, ancestry. You're, you're, you're not worthy. He didn't do that, did he? Philip went to Andrew, verse 22. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. In John 1 and verse 45, we read where Philip found Nathanael. John 1 and verse 45, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip, once again, this time he's going to Andrew. Before it was Nathanael, but together they go to Jesus. He points them to Christ. In John 6 and verse 7, Jesus specifically tested Philip with the question before the feeding of the 5,000, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? A time of testing. Where is Philip's faith? I can't help but wonder if Philip had grown up a little bit, matured a little bit in his faith. Here is a group of Greeks Wanting to see Jesus, a group of Gentiles, there might have been some hesitancy. These are Gentiles. There are people out there talking about Jesus who want to turn him into the religious leaders so that he can be murdered, can be arrested, executed. And Philip takes them to Jesus. He goes in faith. He goes with Andrew. I don't want to take too much uh, time or to try to question Philip too much and his motivation, but I give him credit because he went to Andrew and together they went to Christ. They were dedicated to taking these Gentiles to the Savior, knowing it might cause some issue with the religious leaders knowing that there could be some controversy about them doing this, even from the Jews who would say, those Gentiles aren't worthy. Philip and Andrew wanted these Greeks, these Gentiles, to know their Savior, to know the Messiah. Again, the application just seems so clear and so easy, I don't want to overlook it. Where is our desire for others to see Jesus, to come to Jesus. We can make all kinds of excuses. We can say, well, they don't deserve the gospel. Or they're, don't you understand, God, they're so wicked. Or we're too busy. I, there's, there's all these festivities. There's all these things that we're doing in life. There's, there's all this to do. And we miss divine appointments. Sometimes it's just going about the busyness of life that God gives us divine appointments to give the gospel, to point people to Jesus. I can't, I can't help but make an application right here in our church with the opportunity that God has given us with the deaf community. 
It's a sad situation that, that James has gone to be with the Lord, but here's a man who gave testimony of faith in Christ who has a connection with the deaf community, and God is giving us an opportunity to minister. Just going along the way, just being a part of the community here, and God is opening a door, and we're praying for God to give us opportunity to minister in a unique way on December 10th. In your workplace, some of you are the only light in your workplace. You have a boss, you have fellow co-workers, you have so many people that as believers, we are influencing, we are salt and we are light to them. We should never take that for granted. We should never be derelict in our responsibility. And the thing is, people are watching us. They're watching us. They, they, I, I've gave, given this illustration before, before we even moved into our first house in Indianapolis, I met our, our, one of our neighbors, and he knew all about me. He knew, I shouldn't say everything, but he knew a lot about me. He knew I was an assistant pastor. He knew that we went to church. I mean, he knew several things about me, and I hadn't, we hadn't even moved all of our stuff in. The, the house was still getting fixed up. It was still uh, getting uh, some repairs done. And it turned out we had a great relationship with him for the 16 years that we lived there. But people are watching. We've only been here in Lafayette uh, not quite a, a year and a half. And already relationships with our neighbors and people in, in the community that, that we're building relationships with. People are watching. What was it about Philip? What was it that said, that man knows Jesus? And Philip and Andrew took those Greeks, took those Gentiles to Jesus. And I can't help but wonder, those Greeks, those Gentiles, they may have been right there. They had been involved in the festivities. They had some knowledge of Christ. But I can't help but wonder if that was the day that they truly came to saving faith in Christ. Because with all of that background, we see Jesus preach this sermon, give this discourse. And I've entitled this, The Paradox or a Paradox of Christianity. Verse 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. This word hour has been used several times before in the book of John in reference to God's timetable and God's plan for the life of Christ, for this redemption plan, for the fulfilling of God's will in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've seen in John 2, 4, John 7 and verse 30, John 8 and verse 20, where this word hour is used, where Jesus is speaking to the fact that he is on God's timetable. He's fulfilling God's will in God's redemption plan. He didn't use the word hour, but in John 4, as the disciples came, as Jesus was witnessing to the Samaritan woman, Jesus reminded them that his meat, his food, is to do the will of him that sent me. And Jesus says, the hour has come. He knows that he's just a short time away from going to the cross and becoming the sins of the world for us. Who became sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He knew that was just a short time away where he was going to be that Passover lamb. 
He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then verse 24, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Verse 25, he that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. We're actually going to see several paradoxes of Christianity, a general paradox in that there is a seeming contradiction. It seems that there are opposites here. One person joked around that a paradox is two doctors in the same office. That's not the paradox I'm talking about. This is the paradox, the literary term, where there is a apparent or a seeming contradiction that is used to make a point, to teach a lesson, to reveal a truth. And Christianity has paradox. And we're going to see several of them here. We see in verse 24, we see the paradox of death and life. Jesus used a practical illustration to teach a spiritual truth. In order for that grain of wheat to produce fruit, it must be buried in the ground and die. Many of you are farmers and gardeners, and you know the importance of planting and planting with the right soil and the right amount of water and fertilizer, and you know all about that. And if I say much more, you're going to laugh at me because I know very little. I don't even have a garden. I can barely even keep the flowers alive at our house. But we've done well with our cactus. But we understand that that seed has to go into the ground and it dies, it germinates, and God in his creative design and creative order produces fruits from that death. And there is an illustration here of Christ who would die that there might be eternal fruits. As people trust Christ as their Savior, there is eternal fruits in the death of Christ, but there's also uh, application for individuals who must die to self in order to, truly, in order to truly come to Christ in salvation. Mar, excuse me, Matthew 16 and verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. True discipleship means denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Christ. It means a death to self. Everybody understood when Jesus made that statement to take up our cross and to follow him, everybody understood that the cross meant death. The cross was used by the Romans to make a point that they were the rulers, and the cross was a violent, bloody way to die. No one wanted to die that way. So when Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, it meant dying to myself. It meant dying to oneself for salvation, surrendering myself in death, spiritually speaking, so that Christ can be my life. You know, there's a lot of talk about rights today. And I'm not saying that the Bill of Rights is a bad thing. But if you recognize, if we really studied the Bill of Rights, and many of the rights that were established early in our history in America, we will understand that many of them have biblical principles. 
just the fact that there is religious freedom, religious liberty, understands that man has to worship. The fact that there is a second amendment, there's an understanding that man has a need for safety and protecting oneself. Free speech even has a principle of the fact that God has the word of God to be declared freely for the salvation of man. And there's an aspect to free speech that even has an aspect of biblical principle attached to it, though we understand that not all speech is edifying. And sadly, some of the people that are using free speech are promoting filth and garbage. But just the the fact that there is a desire for us to be able to express our beliefs, to be able to share the gospel, that free speech, that right, that amendment, that's not in some places around the world. We just gave prayer requests from Michael Jeremy, who's pastor, one of the pastors that he ministers to there in Turkey, was told that he cannot share the gospel anymore. They cannot meet anymore. He was taken to a police station, had to show up at a police station and was interviewed. We, we don't know if that day is coming to America. It may come very soon. The Respect for Marriage bill, that's a misnomer. It's not respect for marriage. As a matter of fact, they're recognizing something that isn't even marriage. Rights today are all the talk in America. But most rights are not really rights at all. Most rights are selfish desires for personal gratification, for money, for power, for advantage. That two-year-old throwing a fit at home or in the store or at school, preschool, that two-year-old throwing a fit is demanding my rights. I want what I want and I'm going to get it. And there are weak parents who will give in to the rights of a two-year-old. No wonder the 16-year-old, the 18-year-old is demanding rights in their home, rights of rebellion, because weak parents will give in to a two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. Instead of saying, I'm your mom, I'm your dad, this is the way we're going to do it, you're not going to act like this. And it might mean going to the bedroom or going out to the car and having some stars and stripes. But there are a lot of talk about rights today. This emphasis, this emphasis on personal rights in our individualistic culture like ours is keeping some people from ever surrendering to Christ in repentance and faith. People don't see the need for salvation when they see themselves as perpetual victims, always claiming some sort of injustice against them and wanting Christ to be some sort of social justice warrior instead of Savior and Lord of one's life. I truly believe that much of this talk about rights ultimately condemns people and their souls to an eternal hell because they don't see that they don't have any rights before a holy God. They don't see their need for salvation because they're always playing the victim. It is a grave distortion and lie and deception in our world today. Yes, we are thankful for our Bill of Rights, for our amendments. But why does that not apply to a preborn child? Why do they not have human rights? Or even when they acknowledge that they have human rights, they don't have personhood. How ridiculous. 
And now we have the distortion even of gender, of sexual orientation, and of marriage, where rights are being demanded, demanded where there are no rights. What they are demanding is in clear violation to the word of God, to the commands of God's word, the principles of God's word. There's no rights there. When Jesus said to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him, we're giving up our rights. We're saying, you are our Savior. You are our Lord. You tell us what to do. We are the servants. You are the master. And we are the living sacrifice to be holy and acceptable unto him. And that is our reasonable, that is our expected service. And we're to be transformed and not conformed to this world. But death to self continues throughout the life of the believer. Death to self is necessary at salvation, but it also continues throughout the life of the believer. Death to self dictates our submission and our service. In order for us to be fruitful in the work of God, we must die to our flesh. Galatians 2 and verse number 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Death to self continues throughout the Christian life. One writer said, there is no glory without suffering. There is no fruitful life without death, and there is no victory without surrender in the Christian life. We see the paradox of death and life. In verse 25, we see two more paradoxes. We see hate and love and lose and keep. Look at verse 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Jesus uses two different words for life in this verse. The first two are the word psyche, the original word, if we transliterate it, would be suke, but it's what we use in our terms today as psyche, from which we get the word psychology, psychiatrist. Psychologists, psychiatrists, they study the mind, they study mental disorders. But the natural man, the unsaved, the unsaved man, he doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. He says there's a lot of people who want this life. They think that all that matters is this right here. Now, this life does matter for eternity. As believers, we understand that we are to be doing good works after our salvation. We don't do good works for our salvation. We do good works after our salvation. God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. And so there is a judgment. There is an accounting of our good works. But the unsaved, the, the natural man, he doesn't receive the things of God because his mind is fixed on the temporal. He's fi his mind is fixed on this here right now. The money, the pleasure, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life that passes away. That's what the unsaved natural man is fixed on. And we see that all around in our culture. I don't have to give examples. All we gotta do is open up our phones and go to the news. All you have to do is turn on the TV and you see a culture that is consumed with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, 
We read the natural man does not receive, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, can he, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. While an unsaved person cannot comprehend the supernatural, the things of the Spirit of God, because he has a natural mind, it goes to show that that natural mind must be regenerated. That natural, man, that natural mind must be renewed. As one repents of their sin and places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then they can have a new mind. They can have a renewed mind. They can have the mind of Christ. And they can have eternal life. So we see this paradox. For a person to keep their life, they must hate the natural mind, which is focused on the earth, which is focused on temporal matters, which is focused on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. For a person to keep their life, they must hate the natural mind, which has no insight or explanation for the work of God. Man can't explain it without the supernatural work of God and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. But then we see in verse 25, he that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life, those two words for life are that word suke or psyche, referring to the mind and referring to the temporalness of having our mind fixed on this world, this life, the temporal life. And then we see in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. There at the end of verse 25. That word for life is the word Zoe. That is speaking of a full, meaningful, spiritual life which is found only in Christ. And notice the adjective, eternal life. Eternal life. This is the mind that is fixed on Christ. This is the mind that is renewed. This is the mind that is fixed on the eternal and hates the passing pleasures of sin and sees that this life can only offer emptiness and dissatisfaction. But life in Christ offers satisfaction, eternal life, and so much more. The abundant life is what God wants to give us. We'll talk about that some more when we get to John chapter 14. But we see that paradox of, first of all, we see that paradox of death and life, of hate and love, and then we also see there in verse 25 the paradox of losing and keeping. It goes right along with the hate and love. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. He that loveth his life shall lose it. So many people lose eternal life because they want to keep this world. They're like the kid who sticks his hand in the candy jar, the cookie jar, whatever you want to call it, and clutches on to that candy, grabs a whole handful, but then can't get his hand back out. And he's stuck. And he knows that if he lets go, he can pull his hand out, but he clutches on to the temporal, passing, 
empty sugar high that he will get from that candy. And he clutches it with all his might and gets caught with his hand in the candy or the cookie jar and suffers the consequences for it. And we have so many people today who they love the candy slop of this world and won't let it go and will receive the consequences, eternal consequences, when they could let go of themselves and their pride and they could have eternal life through repentance, forgiveness of their sin through Jesus Christ. But where are we at as believers? Where are we at in our love for this life versus our love for the eternal? Is Christ preeminent? Are, are our affections set on things above? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God? One final paradox and then actually two quick final paradoxes. We see service and honor in verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my ser- also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. We struggle with this even to this day. And our world is full of celebrities. Our world is fixated on being wealthy and being famous and being popular and having all these likes and all these followers and having all of this notoriety and fame and fortune. When really, God says the true key to success is being a servant, being a servant. That's why we're studying in our men's Bible study a book on biblical leadership, which is all about service, all about humility. But the place of a slave or a servant is not considered a place of honor, especially in our culture, nor was it in the culture of Bible times. But Christ said that if you want God to honor you, then you must serve him. Humility and submission are essential if we want to be used by God. We need fewer big shots in Christianity today. We don't need any more celebrity Christians. We need servants. Men and women who will love God, boys and girls, young men, young women who will love God and humbly serve Him, even if it means not doing the glamorous thing even if it means not being wealthy and famous, but loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and serving him, giving up myself, losing my life, hating my life that I might gain the eternal. And again, that denial of self continues into the Christian life. It's necessary for salvation, but then it continues. These paradoxes go throughout the Christian life, death and life. Hate and love, lose and keep, service and honor, and then finally, in our time that we have here, death and glorification. Death and glorification. Verses 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Jesus wasn't questioning God's redemption plan. It was just simply Jesus stating that this was what God had ordained for him. And God could save him from that hour and leave us all in our sin and we could all die and go to an eternal hell and God's wrath would be satisfied by all of us dying and spending eternity in hell. But God loved us so much that we see the answer 
Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. It's hard for us to comprehend how God could be glorified in the sacrifice of his son. But he was. Hebrews 2 and verse number 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Death hardly seems like a way to receive honor and glory, but it is. Glorification included the resurrection, included the crucifixion, it included the ascension, and Christ being seated at the right hand of God. And so often we don't look at it that way. Isaiah 53 and verse number 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Christ satisfied God's wrath and enables man to be justified by faith. And it's an example. First of all, it's our salvation. It is necessary for our salvation that we repent of our sins put our faith and trust in christ that we're justified by faith but it's also an example of how we have to suffer as believers in order for god to be glorified because we think much too highly of ourselves we depend way too much on ourselves we see ourselves way too much as numero uno number one and many times God uses suffering to teach us, to humble us, to test us, to purge us, to sanctify us, so that Paul could write, I glory in the cross of Christ. I glory in my infirmities. Death and glorification, service and honor, hate and love, lose and keep, death and life. Paradoxes that teach us, that help us understand how we must live the Christian life. Jesus Christ being the greatest example who died on the cross for our sins, who was a servant so that we could be justified when we don't deserve it. May we go out from this place renewed, humbled our motivations may they be once again drawn from the love of christ and the love of others for their souls and for our service to them may it may renew us as parents and as grandparents to be the very best influence that we can be where god has placed us in our homes to stand up against the wicked culture even if it means losing our life for Christ's sake, it is the greatest gain of all. And Christ understood that, and he proclaims that in this final sermon. We won't be able to finish all of this passage until next week. But may we once again be dedicated, committed to losing our life for Christ and finding in him our all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by this passage as Christ comes to the final days and hours of his earthly ministry before the crucifixion. We hear him once again proclaiming this eternal truth 
of death being necessary, death to ourselves. And, oh, Lord, how much we need to die to ourselves. In a culture that embraces individualism, in a culture that idolizes self, in a culture that is all about me and my pleasure and my desires and my fame and my fortune and my wealth, Lord, may we turn from this world and put our eyes on you and hate this life that we might gain eternal life and lose our life that we might gain you. That, Lord, we might even be willing to suffer knowing that even through suffering you are glorified. Help us to be servants. Help us to be humble in our homes, in our workplaces, wherever, Lord, you have us. That people might see Christ like they saw Christ in Philip and Andrew. And may we have opportunity to draw others to yourself, to point others to yourself, that they too might know you as their Savior. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.